0: The staff has been calling and sending out emails, trying to figure out if anyone in the church needs help. Um, If you or someone you know can use help that we can give, please let us know. Um, There have been gifts given to the helps fund to assist people, and um, again, we're we're trying to respond. Uh, We've taken, as you all know, we're involved with Calle Elementary, and they have been hard hit. Those are families that can't easily recover, and uh, uh, Kevin and Mason took a bunch of supplies over there for basic needs. Um, So just keep our neighbors in your prayers, and um, let us know if there's something that you know that we can help. Um, Northway Church, the old village Dallas, was destroyed. We offered our building. They've been using it this week, and um, we offered to let them worship here but we're a little small for them and I, they found another place but um, Northway is a, a brother or sister church it. God has used in a mighty way and I'd appreciate your prayers for them as well I don't know of anybody who really likes being tested, testing is just not fun, you know when you make your list of favorite things, rarely do us put on, any of us put on the test, well I really like being tested, you know It's just so great to be tested. Um, And the reality of life, is, though, is that life is full of testing. Tests come pretty regular in life. Uh, And it comes in all kinds of shapes and all kinds of forms. and, and, And the reality is that if you're not in a test now, hold tight, it'll probably catch up with you because that's the way life just is. And, and sometimes those of us who claim to be followers of Christ, uh, we get confused in testing because we get frustrated with God that He's allowed us to go through this difficult thing. And, and sometimes when we're a little out of our minds, we blame Him with causing us to do things that we shouldn't do because of the test we we're in. And so the book of James says, don't, don't blame God when you're tested. God can't sin, nor does He tempt to sin. Uh, but He does test. And frankly, sometimes he tests a lot. And oftentimes the test comes in the form you would least expect it. It comes from a direction you would least expect it to come from. You think a certain area of your life is solid and that's the one where you get blindsided and go through incredibly difficult times. And, and that's when our prayer life, if we keep praying, takes on a different turn. Um, and and oftentimes our prayer life can be kind of full of complaining, right? Don't look at me that way. You've done it. And it's okay. David did it in the Psalms. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is you read the Psalms and David rails against God in the first of the Psalms. He says, God, what in the world are you doing here? And because God is a big boy, I meant that not literally, He, he can handle it, right? It, it's like when a two-year-old complains to you. It, it's... You hear it, you understand it, you have compassion toward it, but it, you, don't, you, don't, you don't let the two-year-old determine what you're going to do, right? When we complain to God, God hears us, He cares, He loves us, but He doesn't necessarily change the, the trajectory of the universe according to our complaints. Although sometimes we wish He would, right? Um, because testing can stretch us in ways that we never thought possible. Some of the people here have or are going through things. You know, if you lost your house in this storm, that's pretty shocking. One of our families lives right across from St. Mark's. I called them the next morning. She said, we were evacuated at 3 this morning. The chimney fell through our roof. It's devastated. Um, That's a test. And as Christians, it's it's easy to say, Lord, hello, you know what you're doing here? But think about David's prayers in the Psalms. He doesn't end with a complaint. When you read them, he always allows the complaint to lead him to where he should be. So they always end in submission to God's will and often will have a call to God's mercy and grace. And it's and when we set aside that pride and, and embrace our need for his mercy, that he really begins to do the work in us. We've been studying the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, one of the great characters in the Old Testament. Um, At times, I don't like him very much. He's just a little too perfect. Um, You know, if you're that perfect friend, could you mess up your hair or something, please? you're annoying, all the rest of us. You know, that, that perfect guy, that perfect person, they're just, and Joseph's one of those. He's just always so stinking perfect. No matter what happens to him, he rises to the occasion and ends up being a hero again. You think, you're the energizer bunny of virtue, for crying out loud. Um, you know, he, he goes through these incredibly difficult times And what's particularly hard is God has given him these dreams that we've talked about. God tells him, you're going to end up being the big kahuna. It's a Hebrew term. Look it up. You're going to to end up being really a big deal. And the next thing he knows, his brothers sell him into slavery, which in my book doesn't feel like a really big deal. And even worse, he's there for years. Years, 13 years probably. I mean, maybe longer, depending on how you add it up. He's, he's there for a long time. And, and every way he turns, things seem to go badly. You know, he works for Potiphar's family, and his wife, Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to rape her. And so he's thrown in prison, and, and he rises to the top. He put over all the guard, and he interprets prayers for the two servants of the king, and they forget him. Well, one of them dies, but the other one forgets him too. And then finally, he, he um, because of his interpretation, he interprets dreams for Pharaoh and, and is placed in this high position of authority after all this time. But still at this point, as far as he knows, his family has forgotten him and doesn't care. Can you imagine? He has no family. I mean, he's been given a wife and, and I'm four wives, that's a good thing, but, but he's, he, he's, he's totally dislocated from his own people. And now, God reunites the family. And I want you to look at this story with me in a couple of ways. First of all, I want you to see it as what we learn about Joseph as a model of how we respond to things that are really bad. And, and that's the way most of us think about Joseph, and, and how we see what God is doing in the life of his good-for-nothing brothers. I mean, that's how I'd feel about them if they sold me into slavery. You sell me into slavery, I'm calling you good-for-nothing, okay? We have an understanding here. That, um, but there's a, there's a bigger narrative in Genesis, and that is that God, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, has chosen these descendants of Abraham and promised He's going to do something special through them. And this, paris, this passage is very significant in fulfillment of that narrative. So if you would like turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, uh, we're not going to read all three chapters aloud because our time is short. But I think it's important that you get this story because it's so important. In chapter 42 is a test of conscience. All three of these chapters are about testing. Verse 1, when Jacob learned, that's dad, that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Um, That was not intended as a compliment. Uh, I have a good friend who started and owned a a large restaurant chain. And and he said, you always have to weed out the, the fly catchers. Those are the ones, the employees that stand like this, waiting for something to happen. That's kind of what dad says. Stop catching flies. Stop staring at each other. For crying out loud, do something. Part of what I want you to see is, this is an intentional contrast to Joseph. What happens every time Joseph gets in a difficult situation? He he bears down harder and he has greater results. And every time negative things happen to his brothers, they stare. One of the things we forget about is that we oftentimes separate wisdom from spirituality. We act as though being wise is totally separate from being spiritual, because spiritual is kind of otherworldish, right? It's, it's, you know, wearing weird clothes and humming or something. It's, we set it aside. as kind of unrealistic. But in, in the Bible, wisdom comes, is rooted ultimately in walking with God. That's why the book of Proverbs is so powerful. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the more we walk with God, the more we understand God, the more we live parallel and, and, and in submission to His plans, the wiser and better our life is. And even people that, that reject God, when, when they choose to live in conformity with what God has commanded us to do, their life is better because, because the two in Scripture go hand in hand. Joseph isn't just good at managing things obviously he was gifted but but he was also wise he he responded to difficulties in a way that in ways that demonstrated his submission to God and his conformity to the wisdom of God so that when others might have stood around and complained with their mouth open he kicks it in and does the right thing that's part of wisdom His brothers, on the other hand, have chosen to reject God's will. And what do they do? They don't do anything. They probably are blaming other things. That's that's their foolishness. So foolishness in in Scriptures is is not just making unwise decisions. It's reflecting of rejecting of God because all of truth begins with acknowledging who God is. And the more we divorce ourselves from that, the further we get away from his wisdom. So these two guys, I mean these ten guys, these brothers, don't come across as very sharp, candidly. Verse 2, he continued, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go to Egypt, get some, for crying out loud, so that we may live and not die. And then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, by the same mother with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for the famine in the land of Canaan also. This family never gets away from the sin of favoritism and envy. It, it It continues to struggle with this. Uh, Jacob was chosen over Esau because of favoritism by his mother. Uh, This sin of favoritism and the envy that comes from it continues to haunt them as one of the themes of their lives. Verse 6, Joseph was the governor of the land and one who sold grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from? From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. After all, he was 17 when he left. He's 30 now. He's he's clean-shaven. He's much older. He's he's wearing Egyptian garb. Verse 9 is important. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You come to see where our lamb was unprotected. He remembered his dreams. We never get away from those broken dreams. They, they haunt us all our lives. There, there's not some magic wand we can wave to make those dreams go away. The reality is that, that they they are with us. And and so he chooses to test them. Uh, verse 10, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies, except for that time when we sold our brother into slavery. But that was a brief lapse. We haven't done it since, okay? All of us feel pretty good about ourselves, right? We, we compartmentalize those accepts. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. They replied, no, no, there were 12 of us, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan, and the youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be what? Tested. The theme of these three chapters is testing. Joseph has been tested and passed with flying colors. Joseph is repeatedly put in position that he did not deserve, and he continues to respond to his testing with faithfulness, integrity, and hard work, diligence. He he is a man that just continually, no matter what the headwinds are against him, he continues to step up and do what he knows he should do. And his brothers have kind of gotten by for a long time, and now Joseph said, the shoe is officially on the other feet. You're going to be tested. In fact, he continues and says, As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested. After all, you lied to my father about me. See if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you're spies, and he put them all in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Interesting little hint here. He doesn't use the word for the name of God of Israel, but he hints about his submission to God. If you're an honest man, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. They said to each other, Surely, we are being punished because of our brother Is't that interesting? The guilt never left uh, we We think time heals all wounds and it does heal some wounds but but it doesn't erase guilt. Uh, guilt is only resolved in the context of forgiveness and and they have lived a lie with their father, they've lived a lie with their brothers, they've lived a lie as it related to Joseph whom they've deemed as dead, and they've lied to God. And consequently, they they have lived under the shadow of that guilt, so that they immediately understand this to be a result of what they had done. Continues, we saw how distressed Joseph was as he pleaded with us for his life, but we couldn't listen, and that's why this distress distress has come upon us. We we see them beginning to repent. They, They are beginning to acknowledge their disobedience. They are beginning to be honest with themselves. They're beginning to tell the truth to themselves. And Reuben replied, the oldest, didn't I tell you not to go against that boy, but you wouldn't listen. Well, that's a little late. But now we must give an accounting for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And he turned away from them and began to weep. Then he turned back and spoke to them, and he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Uh, It would have been more natural to have Reuben as the oldest but I think when he hears that Reuben was not for his being sold, he says, okay, you get a pass. And Simeon comes out as a little bit of a jerk later on in the book of Genesis anyway. So Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, but to put each man's silver back in the sack and to give them provision for their journey. And after this was done, they loaded on the grain on the donkeys and they left. Notice he put They sold him for silver. Now he entraps them with their silver. They they put a price on him. He now puts a price on them. Because the test, uh, oftentimes the test is not divorced from where we failed before. God will bring the test back in the very context in which we were weak. If, If we have, if we struggle with materialistic greed, then the test will often come in that area. If we struggle with lust, the test will come in that area. If we struggle with um, uh, racism and, and, and criticism of others, then the test may come in that. In other words, oftentimes the test comes exactly in the spot where we failed previously. So, He puts silver in their bags and sends them back. Verse 27, at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to feed his dog, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. He says, my silver's been returned. It's here in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to this? And they came to their father, skipping down to verse 35, and as they emptied all their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. And their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He's in jail. And now you want to take Benjamin back? Everything is against me. Jacob doesn't come out as being very helpful in the passage. Verse 37, then Reuben said to his father, You may put both my sons to death, if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. A lot's been written about that with Reuben. First of all, it's interesting that he offers his sons, but not himself, um, quite noble. Uh, He had sold a brother, so now he's selling his sons. Um, But Jacob said, "'My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he's the only one left.'" Notice the favoritism. He has all these other sons, but only Benjamin counts because they are the sons of Rachel. Jacob's still not learned. He's still, he's still not forgiven how he ended up with Leah as his wife. He's still not forgiven how he ended up with these sons from Leah. He is still, he's still living in these grudges. In contrast to Joseph, who just keeps soldiering on. Notice also that he has no intentions of, of going, taking Benjamin back and seeing Simeon. He says, Simeon's gone. They sent a postcard to Simeon at this point. Enjoy jail. Um, Dad ain't coming. And chapter, if if chapter 42 is a test of conscience, chapter 43 is a test for envy and jealousy. Now, the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had to eaten all the grain They had brought from Egypt, their father said, go back and get a little more food. And they said, we can't go back without Benjamin. He said he won't take us. So in verse 8, it says, Judah said to Israel, the father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and our children may live and not die I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before all my life. As it is, we have not, if we had not delayed, we would have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products in the land. Fill it with sweets, candy, bombs, pistachio nuts, almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was taken away. Perhaps it was a mistake. And take your brother also and go back to that mat once, and may God Almighty grant you mercy. This is the high point for Jacob because he finally prays the prayer he should have been praying. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You know how much time we all waste defending ourselves and in our pride and trying to get ourselves out of the messes we've gotten in when when what we really need to do is fall on our knees and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We spend all that time trying to think our way out of the fixes we've gotten ourselves in or work our way out of the fixes we've gotten ourselves in or think, or talk ourselves out of the way fixes we've gotten ourselves. We, we spend all this energy trying to fix it and, and never once think, Lord, have mercy. We act as though He doesn't matter in the equation, and, and the reality is that it's His mercy, his, his grace that is the ultimate solution, not our efforts, because we are not adequate in and of ourselves. We can't fix our problems. But God can. Lord, have mercy. Uh, Jacob has been a deceiver. He's been one who shows favoritism. He he consistently fails the test. But now, ironically, the text has him praying, whether intentionally or not, the one thing he should have been praying all along, Lord, have mercy mercy most of us don't start getting healthy until we finally look to God and say Lord have mercy we waste our time defending ourselves explaining ourselves and everything else when when God is sitting in his heaven having given us everything that we have and simply wants us to say Lord have mercy So unwittingly or not, Jacob finally prays the prayer he should have prayed all along. So the men, verse 15, took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, and they hurried back to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And they they confess about the silver in their bags, and verse 23, they said, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Joseph, brings Simeon out to them. And Simeon says, took you a while, right? Thanks for all those thoughts and prayers. And the steward took the men into Joseph's house and gave them water to wash their feet and provided father, fodder for their donkeys and prepared gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. And when he came, they bowed down before him. In fulfillment of his dreams, they've now bowed down twice. He had two different dreams, that they would bow before him, and now twice they have bowed before him. After all these years, the dreams from God have come true. See, we too often shake our fists at God and say, God, you've forgotten me. You haven't done what you said you would do. And he says, my time is not your time, and my ways are not your ways. God's promises are met but they're often met in ways that we don't expect and they're certainly rarely come at the time when we expect them because that's part of the test the test if every time we believe God owes us something he instantly gives us how do we grow our faith then that's there's no growth of faith in that faith comes from trusting God Day after day, moment after moment, long night after long night when we're wondering, God, where are you? Lord, have mercy. And, and it's in the strengthening of that faith muscle that we, we grow the kind of perseverance that God wants for us and the strength of character. I had the privilege to be a part of the generation raised by the greatest generation. I, I, my generation's parents went through the Great Depression and, and World War II. And and much has been written about the greatness of them and all that they accomplished and their character. But we often forget why they were why it, they were. It was because of what they went through. They were tested in ways that none of us can comprehend. And they came through that test, not talking about it, just changed. Because it's it's God's testing that he uses to mold us. All too often, you and I go through times of testing and we say, God, what in the world are you doing? And rather than learning from it, rather than growing, rather than than seeking Him, we throw our tantrums or stand around looking at each other. But the Josephs among us keep passing the test. They keep responding. They keep on. And it's it's in that day-to-day faithfulness the character comes. You don't get character by going through a six-week class and filling out blanks in a questionnaire. You don't get character by walking forward in one church service and it's all taken care of. You don't get character by going to a weekend conference, no matter how good it is. Character is built by that steady obedience in the midst of the test. And Joseph's brothers had continually flunked tests, and so now God puts them in a position where their character will be strengthened and raised. That's one reason I love the older saints at Grace, because they are people who have passed the tests of time. They have character. So they took the men into Joseph's house, and they fed their donkeys, and they took care of him. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they brought, and they bowed down to him in the ground. And he looked, verse 29, and sees his brother Benjamin, and he weeps again. He serves them food. They eat alone because Egyptians detest Hebrews. Verse 34 is interesting, though. When portions were served for them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. Hmm. See, envy had gotten him into this situation. See, envy says, I'm more important than you, or at least as important. Whatever you have, I should have. Envy doesn't rejoice at God's blessing in other people's lives. It complains that God hadn't blessed me as much. Envy is totally inconsistent with biblical love. And it's why it's list. 1 Corinthians 13. Read the list. It's not part of it. They had failed because of their envy. They, they had failed in their pride. And now they finally understand their need for mercy. And what do they do when Benjamin gets five times as much food? They enjoy what they got because every gift comes from God. They used to call jealousy or envy the green-eyed monster. It it can consume us because we fail to acknowledge what God has given to us. And the irony is oftentimes when we're complaining about what God has given to someone else, it causes us not to celebrate what He has given to us. Because all we can see is how God has been deficient in His blessing to us. It is ultimately, it is ultimately a declaration against God that He doesn't know what He's doing. And if you want to enjoy worship, you worship in parts of the world where, relative to us, they have everything to complain about, but in the presence of God, they celebrate His love. They have no envy. Why? Because they're stripped away of everything else, and they see just how blessed they are in God. Envy is one of the great curses in our society, and sadly, even in our church. They pass the tests of jealousy. Chapter 44 This is all 22 years later. Joseph gave instructions to the steward to fill the man's sack with food and and send them on their way and put my silver goblet in Benjamin's sack. So they go out after him and guess what? There's the silver goblet and they bring them back and once again there's a panic because Joseph has said the one who has the stole my goblet I will put in prison and they realize the very son that Jacob wanted back as the one that won't come back. And verse 18 begins the turn of the story in a really significant way. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let me speak a word to you. And he describes the events that we've been reading about, how, how God had given Jacob two sons by this one wife, and how one son was gone not knowing it was Joseph and how this favorite son was Benjamin and, and how dad didn't want Benjamin to come. And and if you take Benjamin, it will kill dad. And he acknowledges, sadly, that after all Benjamin's dad's favorite. And verse thirty three is fascinating. He fin- it finishes by saying, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers, because how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't, don't let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And compassion has entered the house. He cares more about what it will do to his father than he cares about slavery for himself. But don't miss the most significant thing. Judah offers himself in Benjamin's place. Because, see, it's the tribe of Judah that in the end of the book of Genesis and and the progression of the Old Testament will be declared the one from whom the king will come, the Messiah will come. And it's the ministry of the Messiah that he will come to reign but he will first give himself for others. Uh, Judah is a picture of what his descendant, the King Messiah, will ultimately do. The King Messiah will step up on our behalf when we need mercy, and he will say, Father, take me instead. And it's a perfect picture of the ministry that Jesus will have and has had and will have in the lives of all who confess their need for a Savior and embrace Him. And this this passage is intended to show that Judah is beginning a trajectory that will culminate in the birth of the King, Messiah, who calls for God to have mercy and take Him instead. See, life is full of tests, and how we respond to that test will have a great deal to do with how we grow to be people. And as Christians, those who have placed our faith and hope in Christ, part of what we do is in the midst of tests, uh, we like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though, Though the things are hard, I will continue to trust him because I know who my Savior is. But this is also a story that We'll never do it perfectly. We're never enough. And God has even provided for our weakness that in our inadequacy, a son of Judah will be adequate. And he will do what we could not do, live a perfect life and pay the price for our infidelity so that we might join him in his resurrection. This is a story about how we can develop character, how, how we can be people like Joseph because we stay faithful in the midst of tests. We, we call out to God in our need for mercy. We continue to be faithful and look to Him even when things don't seem right. We trust His promises even when it seems as though He's forgotten us. But it's also an illustration that what God promises, He never forgets. And even when it looks awful, God is still at work accomplishing His perfect plan. And that's why we can trust Him. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we struggle with trusting, especially when things are hard. Thank You that You don't let Your people down. Help us to be faithful in the test. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.